Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Green Life Group, leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. So for Aussies only this month, we're taking a bit of a unique perspective. Polly Moles has done most things that there are to do in the sport of tennis, from playing to, to coaching to looking at it from a more broad spectrum and has dabbled in some other sports and has recently completed some studies, the PhD, which looks at coaching and the, the balance and the various ups and downs and challenges and influences that, that that does hold on the sport. But a fascinating journey through tennis. Kylie, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Darren. I'm certainly very excited to come on and speak to you. So thank you. Going back to where it started now I understand you're a talented junior in, in a couple of sports obviously tennis being individual with the team element and netball being a, a team oriented sport from from South Australia can you sort of take us through where it all started tennis specifically and how tough it was maybe in the end to choose between the two sure uh, so I'm originally from um, Uradla which is a small town in the Adelaide Hills and I guess growing up you know, uh, back in the hills, you, you you thoughts really that you played at the time as a female um, were really only tennis and netball. There weren't that many opportunities um, to play other sports. Um, and my mum was a netball coach, so she's obviously very keen um, for me to play play netball. Uh, and she was also heavily involved in tennis as a young person as well. So uh, I was very lucky to have a lot of opportunities playing tennis and netball. And I certainly I did love netball. I love um, the team element of it, I loved, um, I guess, the social interaction with that. But I found, um, you know, I really wasn't that big growing up. So tennis um, was probably the sport where I, I had some success early on and um, was able to um, play. I played local competition. I think I was playing in Division One as a um, 10-year-old, 9, 10-year-old, which was actually really fantastic. And that was such a a great learning experience for me because I was playing against adults and lots of different learning um, playing styles. So it really did help me um, with my my development. Um, and then when I was 12, I think I was first selected um, for my first state team. Um, so, and I remember this very clearly because I've come back in a, in a I guess, a research and a coaching sense, but my first team manager was Sharon Hambly and Sharon, um, is I guess a tennis one of the tennis icons um, down at, where are they at Seaford I think and um, yeah very important coach and and really somebody who was very important to me growing up um, so that was my first opportunity to participate interstate um, I was then involved I guess in you know state and national teams my first national team was when I was um, sixteen and um, it was the first time I went overseas I love that experience um and then I played for I think probably another three years and couldn't quite um make it through I guess you know I was ranked 200 on the WTA tour but wasn't really good enough to make a living um and so I had to make some decisions I then decided to go down the coaching pathway um again I guess probably heavily influenced by my mum who was a, a netball coach um but she could see that there was also a pathway there in coaching. Um, I was a coach at Tennis SA, um, Tennis Australia and Australian Institute of Sport for about 10 years. Um, I worked my way uh, to high performance coaching qualification 
which I still have. Um, and then I left the sport. So this was about 15 years ago now. Um, I left the sport altogether and um, I found myself in, I guess, you know, trying out a lot of different careers. So I was in um, project management, um, in construction. Uh, I was working in the university sector, uh, worked for softball Australia as well. So a lot of different sports. And then um, I've actually only recently within the last 12 months come back to to tennis and that has been a lot to do with um, finishing my PhD and exploring uh, coaching and really coaching, researching coaching has brought me back to tennis and um, I've found you know, the last 12 months it's really been unbelievable how everything has aligned. Um, I've been working fairly closely with Nicole Pratt at Tennis Australia in the Coach Connect program and also here at, um, I'm in Canberra currently, so at Tennis ACT with Alison By and the crew here. And really enjoying it. So I'm very lucky um, to be back in tennis. And um, yeah, certainly had an interesting career pathway um, today. We had uh, Nicole on a, a few months ago. So if anyone wants to listen back to that, they can uh, jump on the uh, on the website and dig back through the the podcast. But did you feel that inevitably you would always sort of come back to tennis when you did make the break? Was it a, a case of well, I'll I'll see where this takes me, or did you feel that there was an itch that one day would have to be scratched against? Yeah, for sure. Um, I always knew that when I wasn't involved in tennis, there was something missing and I was looking for it and I tried to, I tried a number of different things, so I guess trying to find that that gap um, or uh, I guess that that part of me that was really, um, yeah, just wasn't there. And I actually became, um, I, I really did become a recluse. Um, I was really, found myself quite introverted. I stayed away from a lot of or anything really related to tennis, um, a lot of people related to tennis. And um, I, yeah, really wasn't myself until recently until I've come back into it. And I guess that's, um, you know, such a great platform and it's such a great community and I really did miss that. So I I think I knew that there was something there that was missing um, and it took me, it certainly took me a while to find it. Um, but now that I'm back into it, it's one of the best things I've ever done in a long while. So I'm very happy to be back. How was the adjustment from playing to coaching, especially when you were that young? Um, you'd obviously had a bit of experience um, on the tour, uh, which would have obviously helped, but but coaching at a, at a pretty young age, and I think you were based overseas for a while, would have come with some challenges? Yeah, yeah. I was very lucky when I was playing. I had a lot of great mentors um, at Tennis SA who um, were very, um, very important people and very important coaches to me. There was... Um, Graham Neville, Roger Tizer was there, you know, some of you might remember um, these guys and, and they were great mentors, um, Anthony Lane. I mean, there's so many of them, even Darren Kay was there at some point and they really, um, I guess, supported me and I never felt excluded in terms of um, developing my coaching. So I was kind of very lucky um, and some of the coaches that I'm mentoring now um, don't quite we, when we we're finding that there's a gap there um, where I guess I was while I was playing I was coaching as well um, so I was probably really coaching back when I was 14 15 and doing some work and I remember doing uh, work experience when I was in high school and I would do work experience at Tennis SA so um, you know I would kind of shadow the state coaches then um, so as a 14 15 year old I was doing that so um, it wasn't necessarily a difficult transition um I, I did spend some time in New York um as I when I was first coaching and that was 
I was working at a country club um, and I guess my development pathway, I always wanted to make sure that I would learn to coach at all levels. Um, so I, um, you know, I was coaching beginners, I was coaching adults, and then I was lucky enough to work with um, some of the talented juniors um, in the state program at Tennis SA with Luke Seville and Alex Bolt and, and those guys. That was probably one of my best coaching experiences. Um, I think probably the toughest time was working in the AIS program because, um, you know, that was working with some older players and then I needed to be travelling with them so it would be on the road nine, ten months of the year. So that was certainly very tricky. Um, so I, I, I don't think I necessarily found the transition from playing to coaching difficult. I was very, very lucky in that sense. Um, I feel like, yeah, I just... I had a lot of great mentors and support that helped me make that transition. So, yeah, certainly very lucky in that regard. Uh, you mentioned being ranked around 200 in the world and, and the challenges of making a professional living. I know a lot of the guys at the top end, the, the guys and girls in the top 20, often talk about players around 200, 250, saying, does the sport do enough to allow them to consistently travel when you've got coaches and physios and accommodation and all of that sort of stuff? Do you feel the game has developed enough that more people can can make a living or is there still a black hole if you will around that mark yeah look it's it's certainly really interesting i was watching a documentary um a few days ago ago um from the lta where they where they do talk about you know that that level um i do feel like it has changed or it is changing um there's certainly a lot of money as we know you know for the top 100 players now it was never um like that when i was playing i feel like that's making a gradual change um but i also do feel that it's certainly very valuable if um players can upskill in other areas as well so whether it be you know coaching doing you know some kind of a degree i feel like i guess that dual pathway or that dual career pathway can certainly be very important because as we know, we're not going to be um, playing sport forever or playing tennis forever. So um, I think it's um, it's on the way. It's it's on the way um, to making it it easier um, for a lot of players that are ranked around you know probably two hundred to five hundred. Um, but it still there's a big gap. You know, there's a lot of money um, you know for the top echelon as it is for the for the lower le- levels. A lot of your studies, from what I can understand, centered around behavioural science and psychology and things like that. Were there some fundamentals, I'm sure there were with the, the PhD, but some fundamentals you learnt along the way thinking, geez, if I understood the human psyche when I was playing or when I was younger or when I was coaching or whatever it may be, I would have done X, Y, and Z. Was there a particular eye-opener that, that sort of came through that? Yeah, absolutely, and that's a, a really great question. Um, a lot of my research has been uh, looking at, I guess, the biopsychosocial element, uh, which is... A number of different layers that can have an effect on athlete development and human development. So it's not necessarily what's happening within the individual. So that can be more of a psychological factor, such as you know motivation. It's the next layer around the individual as well. So it could be you know what, how are my parents or my coaches affecting the way I behave on the court, or you know what's happening at school that's having an impact on you know my training intensity. Or what about, you know, how how is my parents' economic status, you know, affecting um, my ability to get to tennis or um, to afford coaching? So for me, what I used um, in my research was you know, this multi-layered um, approach and looking at 
uh, I guess, athlete development through that lens. And it certainly really was an eye-opener because I, I really felt that, you know, I wish I'd understood um, a lot of things, a lot of these different factors that had an influence on me as a player and as a coach. And then, you know, why when I was coaching young kids, um, why was I not looking a little bit deeper into, you know, they might come out into the court and they'd be really um, upset about something and I would just be like, no, you know, get over it. We've got to train hard today instead of really getting to know the person. So um, I learned a lot about, um, you know, the coaching climate and the caring climate and um, it's certainly more about human development than it is. Um, so we, should, we need to be as coaches putting um, the human side of things first before the athlete. And that's really important, you know, for long-term uh, well-being and development as well. So, yeah. It feels like um, coaching in general has learnt that each individual is different, even within a team where some person might need the more cuddly approach. Other people might respond really well to, for want of a better expression, putting a rocket up them, so to speak, um, giving yep. them a serve yep. and, and all of that type of thing. So, I would imagine a lot of that would be understanding that individual person. We're saying, okay, well, this person doesn't react to this, but the person next to him does, and obviously telling the difference. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And the other thing that's very interesting is, that I guess, that's the um, relational aspects between the coach and the athlete. And then it's, you know, what about their peers? So, you know, when we're training in, in tennis, obviously we'll train in a group as well. How does one player affect another player you know does it help them to increase their um intensity does it are they more or less competitive you know what 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 changes and um i do some coach mentoring here in canberra and i work with some coaches who are then coaching a group of girls and it's so interesting how the dynamics or the environment changes when we have different um I guess, combinations of players come out, how one week it can be, um, you know, really focused, intense, and the next week um, it's very casual and laid back. And it's really hard, I guess, for the coach to be able to um, pinpoint what's working and what's not for each player. So, uh, and particularly I think that's really tricky for tennis because it is an ind individual sport. So how do you get, how do you maximise the training opportunities for athletes when they're being um, impacted by so many different influences or factors. So then it's, yeah, it's really the coach digging a little bit deeper and finding out what makes a person tick um, and really understanding, okay, well, what do I need to do? Even though there are other players out here today, what do I need to do to get the best out of this person? You know, how can I um, maximise her training environment with this one's training environment so that, you know, they're both getting, um, I guess, the maximum effect um, from from the situation. So, yeah, it's really certainly really interesting, you know, the coach-created motivational climate, the peer-created motivational climate, the parents, how they have an impact, um, you know, siblings, significant others. So, yeah, there's certainly the environment. I find the environment really interesting and how that can um, change and how the coach can also influence that. And that comes back down to recognising what each athlete needs and their individual needs. Uh, well Digging a little bit deeper into that, it's a, a fascinating subject. You look at situations like taking random players, so Nick Kyrgios effectively not coached, um, someone like a, a Bernard Tomic or, or more significantly like a Stefano Sitsipas coached by family and things like that. Then you get you know, professional coaches that travel around the world like a Moritoglu or a Darren Kale or, or something like that. And 
I guess, understanding that balance between someone like Nick going it alone, someone getting coached by a direct relative who they've grown up with, and then someone getting coached by effectively a professional who's from outside their circle. Uh, has the study sort of found any correlation around players either leaving the sport early or, or the way they react to those different scenarios? Yeah, I mean, and th- and that's, again, a fantastic question, Darren. It's um, for, for everybody, I think it's, it's, you know, it's quite different and it's finding, and it might, it takes time to find out what the ideal climate is. Um, from some of my research, we found that the coaches that um, I guess were more egocentric, um, were more controlling and authoritative, um, they were, and this might not necessarily have um, been the only reason, um, but a lot of those, and this was in swimming, these swimmers um, were dropping out early. So, you know, between the ages of 11 and 12, um, a lot of them. And, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of other um, environmental factors to consider in swimming, such as training times and um, and um, the way that the coaches have to speak to the swimmers because they're underwater a lot of the time. So there's so many different factors, but we did find that um, with this more disempowering climate and this controlling climate um, for Australian athletes as well, so we need to remember the cultural differences, uh, it wasn't working. So that was certainly one influential factor. These were also, uh, I guess, the context, you know, there were um, competitive swimmers, so uh, I guess in national level swimmers. So we're talking about, you know, some of the athletes that you've, or the, ten, the players that you've mentioned, you know, they, they're elite athletes. So I guess they have the flexibility um, um, to be able to, to select the environment that's best for them. Um, so I do feel like, you know, there's no um, one size fits all when it comes to selecting um, how players work best with coaches. And I think there's just so many different factors that can have an influence on that. And we also found that um, from some of the research that, yes, the coaching climate had a huge impact on um, disempowering athletes and whether they dropped out or not. But there was another something like 68 different factors that can have an influence on um, dropout. So, you know, everybody, I guess, is different. And I think, you know, really it's, the art of coaching to be able to understand, um, you know, ha- have an idea of what influential factors can really impact um, the athlete in a positive or, or negative way and how do they minimise the risk, I guess, and or, or maximise the benefit of being able to find the environment that's right for them so that they can then maximise their, their athletic development. How have you found look, through the the PhD? I guess explaining the the fundamentals of that, and and I guess the the key things you've you've learnt overall that perhaps we haven't touched on your your PhD with the University of Sydney. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So so yeah. what have been yeah what have been the major takeaways overall? Yeah. So I guess um, the main takeaway, or well, the really my PhD was done uh, in two parts. So. Um, the first part, I was very lucky to have a large data set from Swimming New South Wales. Um, they initially recognised that they um, had a lot of swimmers that were dropping out. So um, young swimmers, um, again, swimming's a different sport because um, I guess it's a it's a life skill, um, the learn to swim idea. So it does start off at 100% really participation rate because it's a survival skill. 
and so it's different to other sports such as tennis where um, the game of tennis um, and uh, the organisation has to really attract athletes first, where swimmers are kind of there anyway because they need to learn to swim to survive in a lot of instances. So uh, we found that there were the dropout rates were really, uh, they were huge, but they weren't being measured in the right way. So what was actually happening um, in the majority, we only really looked at news in New South Wales, but there was this topping up effect occurring. So each year, um, you know, it was like thousands of swimmers were dropping out, um, but the new cohort would come in. So at the end of the year, New South Wales Swimming and, and other swimming organisations as well, and it wasn't their fault by any means, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody, but would report um, stable or an increase in participation rates. And we knew that that wasn't the case. So and a lot of this reporting has to be done, um, I guess, you know, for funding, and so forth. And so we really looked deeper at how to measure um, dropout. So we use a technique that's been used a lot in medicine and in um, cancer research actually to drop, to really individually look at where and when the swimmers are dropping out. And that then um, was something that was quite novel. It hadn't been, it had only been done before um, in Belgium in a study on gymnastics. Um, so the first time it was done in swimming. Um, so from that point then we could kind of pinpoint um, focusing on something that can be changed and can be um, because there are so many different factors that we knew that by putting in a coach education intervention program, we could have some um, short-term benefits. So the second part of my PhD was then doing exactly that, uh, was developing a coach um, intervention or education um, program that helped the coaches to understand what motivation was. So what can they do in their training environments that can um, influence the young athletes to stay in the program for longer? So it was a lot to do with um, how they spoke, so communication, how they spoke to the athletes, um, how they structured their training, the feedback they gave, and understanding all these other factors that can have an influence on their motivation. So looking at, you know, what's happening at school. So really trying to develop more of this, I guess, caring climate um, so that they um, realised how important their role was um, as a coach in terms of, yeah, the, the short and long-term well-being. And, yeah, it's been balancing that, as you say, through swimming, but also softball and, and netball and sports like that, that, you know, netball, for example, huge sport in Australia, softball, perhaps still a – not a developing sport because it's been around for a long, long time, but doesn't perhaps have the public standing of tennis, swimming or netball for that yeah. matter. Yeah. Did you find it yep. was different that things like that were different in terms of creating pressure and even team environments might've been less precious than an individual? Yeah, look, softball is certainly a really interesting sport and I um, really enjoy my time working for, for Softball Australia. They, um, the athletes have to pay to be part of a national program. So, um, you know, and they that full time, um, that have full time employment as well. So, uh, they I found that they were actually really grateful at any opportunities that they had, um, and they played because they loved. They genuinely, genuinely had a love of the game. So, um, I feel like they were all very intrinsically motivated because. You know, they were doing it for themselves, for their love of the game. And and we know that 
um, intrinsic motivation will often last longer um, than external motivation. So a lot of these, you know, tennis, for example, you could say that some athletes are externally motivated through money or prestige or, you know, what mum or dad says and, and so on. So softball is certainly a really interesting environment to work in. Um, very much um, a tight community, a small community um, of athletes and and um, administrators and I really did enjoy my time because it certainly opened my eyes um, to how different environments can be within you know um, different sporting organizations and you know softball is an Olympic sport so um, you know what can be done to you know provide uh, more in those environments and certainly tough with limited budgets. Looking at just a couple before we let you go in terms of what you do these days besides that do you still get the chance to you know get out on court and have the occasional hit or do any level of you know coaching at a junior level or do you stay involved in a in an on-court perspective yeah so um my my main role at the moment I'm a lecturer at the University of Canberra um in sports psychology so I'm uh, really enjoying that but I do get out on the court um, I do some work for, for Tennis Australia in the Coach Connect space so I'm working mainly with other coaches other female coaches mentoring coaches um, I do get out on the court um, a couple of times a week I'm also uh, I guess working a little bit with my stepson um, out on the court as well so that's certainly a very new experience he's only just really started playing the game for the last six months so uh, I, I guess it's my little experiment. I've got the beauty of um, looking at different sports and how that can have an influence on tennis development and athletic um, development. So, um, yeah, I do certainly get out there. Uh, I've been at, you know, some junior tournaments more recently and um, I, I love it. I, tr I do try and have a bit of a hit now and then as well. So, um, yeah, look, it's a fantastic sport and um, I'm so glad to be back involved again. There was an event this year, the 2023 President's Women in Tennis Workshop. You mentioned Nicole Pratt. Um, what was that experience yes. like in terms of bringing, I guess, a lot more women into the sport or, or giving, um, I guess, additional opportunities and that type of thing? Yeah, so look, Nicole Pratt is, uh, she's been unbelievable. She, um, you know, she is Australian tennis or female Australian tennis and uh her her baby we we'll call it her baby um the coach the coach connect coach connect program uh i was first involved in it um probably just over 12 months ago now in in adelaide and it was probably one of the most empowering experiences for me and that was just as i came back into tennis and you know there was some sharon hambley who i mentioned earlier on and um, a lot of other coaches um who i had played with but i hadn't seen for a very long time so to be back in that environment um it was certainly it was amazing and and that really is um nicole pratt she's inspired a lot of female coaches um i think there are now 70 plus female coaches in the program that um you know we we're in constant communication and um, there's a lot of sharing of ideas of support um of up healing um each other in in all you know everyone has so many different strengths um that and, and i guess abilities to take their coaching um to the next level so it's really exciting when we get together we have another coach connect event coming up soon in 
in Brisbane in a few weeks' time. So I'm very much looking forward to to being involved in that. Um, that's a three-day workshop where we kind of get together and share ideas and, um, yeah, just try and, I guess, really continue um, the legacy that Nicole has has really got going at the moment in, in um, female tennis in Australia. And the last couple, I guess, are two part of the most rewarding thing you've discovered in the game and the most challenging thing you would pinpoint about tennis? Um, look, I feel like tennis is an amazing platform. Um, it, you know, I, if I hadn't played tennis, I would probably still be in the Adelaide Hills. Um, I'm from a strawberry farm, so I'd probably still be there. It's given me so many opportunities to travel, to meet people, um, to develop as as a person and just to learn so much about myself. So the game, you know, the the game is just, to me, it's one of the best sports in the world um, when it's, you know, done the right way. Obviously, you know, you often hear a lot of um, negative stories in relation to the game, but I feel like my experience, particularly more recently, has been so positive and empowering and I feel really um lucky and fortunate to be back in tennis challenging um I think you know there there's a lot of um I think sometimes it's a lack of education and um more so maybe from some coaches some parents that um where the game can be taken out of context um so People, particularly young people, are not playing for the right reasons. Um, and I feel that that can be, can really have some detrimental impacts on on young lives. Um, and I've, you know, as a lot of people have seen the nasty side of tennis as well with um, abuse, uh, which, you know, emotional, physical, psychological abuse. And that to me is really sad. I mean, obviously it happens in a lot of sports as well, but sometimes I think it's, um, sensationalised in tennis because maybe the amount of money that's seen to be uh, made, particularly now, which is really interesting, um, on social media, there's a lot that's on social media and if it's not critically analysed, I feel, in the right way, um, it can be actually really negative and detrimental to to a lot of um, young people starting out in the sport. I think that's spot on. Kylie, thank you very much for uh, giving us some time today. It's been uh, terrific to, to get some insights. It's a, a fascinating topic and yeah, hopefully people can get some, uh, get a bit of knowledge and a bit of enjoyment out of it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win.